This program is brought to you by Emory University. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Laura Nasrallah is professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Harvard Divinity School, where she's been teaching since 2003. She's the author of two books. The first is entitled An Ecstasy of Folly, Prophecy and Authority in Early Christianity. And the second is entitled Christian Responses to Roman Art and Architecture, the Second Century Church Amid the Spaces of Empire. He is also the co-editor of two books. The first is entitled From Roman to Early Christian Thessalonica, Studies in Religion and Archaeology. The second is entitled Prejudice and Christian Beginnings, Investigating Race, Gender, and Ethnicity in Early Christian Studies. He's also been commissioned to write a commentary on 1 Corinthians for the Hermeneia series. And presumably, the uh, research for that project relates to her presentation today, which is entitled, You Were Bought with a Price, Free Persons and Things in 1 Corinthians. Please join me in welcoming her. Let me see if I'm properly wired up here. I think so. You think so? Good. Um, I always feel like a like Madonna, which shows you what vintage I am when they give me these little walking mics. Thank you so much for having me here today. It was a very gracious invitation. I've been having a wonderful time meeting faculty and students alike. I'm very grateful. And I want to confess at the very outset that I'm making a rookie mistake in offering you this lecture. You always tell your friends and your students don't offer new research to a community you don't know. But here it goes. I ask for your, for your gracious and constructive criticism of, of this new project. Let me tell you a little bit about where it's come from and where it's going. The um, work I'm going to present to you today emerges out of the last two chapters from my previous book, in which I was really interested in who gets to be in the image of God or in the images of gods in the ancient world. And thus I offer to you, for your midday repast, an image of the emperor Claudius as Jupiter, offered by the people of Lanuvium in, uh, in Italy. We know that in the ancient world in the first century and beyond, people were depicted in the image of gods, not just emperors, but also other people as well. I can get this right. Um, so here we have an image of a woman on your right, depicted as the Aphrodite of Knidos, a Roman woman, Flavian period probably. There we go. With her rather big hair, right? Depicted in her funerary iconography as Aphrodite. This strange mystery that art historians has struggled with and that scholars of Roman history have struggled with. Why is it that women and men had themselves depicted as the gods, and in particular as this goddess, naked, a sort of a tradition you would not find actual Roman matrons wandering around um, looking naked. Um, what does it mean to live in a culture where humans could be depicted as gods, where gods look like humans? And not only that, but a second century Roman satirist named Lucian jokes about the fact that the gods in their statuary form are things, things to be bought and sold, things from which their golden beards can be shorn and stolen away. What does it mean that Zeus does not have the power 
over his own statuary form, but uh, temple robbers can come in. So I was really provoked by thinking about this question, what does it mean to live in a culture where gods and humans can be bought and sold in statuary form, humans can be bought and sold in their human form, where humans can be in the image of gods and gods are imagined as humans. What does it mean to live in a culture where there's this ontological blurring between God, human, and thing? The project I'll present to you today comes out of um, three contexts that I've been thinking with. The first is that within the study of New Testament and early Christianity, there's been a lot of really great work done recently, also in Roman history, on slavery. What does it mean to turn our attention to slaves within the historical record? I think of Bernadette Bruton's recent work on beyond slavery, as well as uh, Peter Garnsey's work on slavery, his collection of texts on that as well. Slavery in the New Testament is a second context that I'm thinking with, and the painful topic that it is, I want to quote to you, I'm glad we've already had Howard Thurman present, to quote to you from an interview you probably know that Howard Thurman gave. In it, he talks about his grandmother, and I quote, occasionally when she was in an expansive mood, she would talk about her life as a slave on the plantation in North Florida. And he tells, her, uh, he tells one of the stories that he remembers from this. Her telling that, and I quote again, sometimes the plantation owner's minister would be permitted to hold a religious service for the slaves, and he always preached from the same text, slaves, be obedient to your masters, for this is right in the Lord. My grandmother said that she made up her mind then and there that if she ever learned to read or if freedom ever came, she would never read that part of the Bible. So all the years that I was growing up and had the job of reading to her every day, I could never read any of the Pauline letters, except now and then the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. What does it mean to teach biblical studies and to know that these are texts that can be life and liberation bringing, but they're also texts that can constrain and legitimize injustice? A third context that I'm thinking out of as I work on this project has to do with the feminist Donna Haraway's work. She has routinely questioned the difference, the distinction, and the combination between machines, animals, and humans. So it's a kind of place that I'm thinking about. And she has been using the work of a historian of um, early America who's thinking about creatures of empires, a sort of nerdy book that I've really been enjoying on what does it mean to focus on cattle as a way of telling the history of the early America. Been thinking about that as well. And where is this project going? As Walter mentioned, I'm working on a commentary on 1 Corinthians. I'm also working on a book on the archaeology and the letters of Paul. So, you were bought with a price, freed persons and things in 1 Corinthians. Humans have often been things bought with a price. Sometimes they can escape this situation by buying their freedom or having it bought for them. This is even true in our own day. We hear reports of slavery and sex trafficking. Reproductive industries functionally or explicitly buy and sell the human goods required to make future humans. A womb can be rented. Ethnographers report that the poor fear organ trafficking, the fragmentation of the human body, the sale of kidneys and eyes. In each case, the human or the potential human, the ovum, the uterus, the sperm that produce the human, or human body parts are bought rented, exchanged, or sold, often in an unregulated market. What is a human worth? We have not yet plumbed the ethical opportunities and the ethical tragedies of this question. 
Our understanding of the concept of humans as things and commodities as slaves or as former things as freed persons in Mediterranean antiquity is constrained by the paucity of evidence in the literary and archaeological record and data that defy attempts to produce conclusive quantitative analyses of ancient slave populations, slave trade, slave prices. Yet from the quantitative and qualitative data together, we can uh, glean an impression of a sobering, significant slave trade. Walter Scheidel concludes, and I quote him, during the millennium from the emergence of the Roman Empire to its eventual decline, at least 100 million people and possibly many more were seized or sold as slaves throughout the Mediterranean and its hinterlands. In terms of duration and sheer numbers, this process dwarfs both the transatlantic slave trade of European powers and the Arabic slave trade in the Indian Ocean. The modern observer must wonder how to do justice to the colossal scale of human suffering behind these bland observations. My talk today takes up the topic of things that are people, of slavery and manumission, by engaging in the thought experiment of taking very seriously three short sentences in 1 Corinthians. Not once but twice in this letter, Paul and Sosthenes say to the ecclesia or assembly of those in Christ at Corinth, you were bought with a price. And 1 Corinthians 7.22 contains the only use within the New Testament canon of the term apeleftheros, or its cognates, the technical Greek word for a freed person. And I quote, for the person who is a slave at the time when she or he was called in the Lord, he or she is the freed person of the Lord. The Corinthian community that first received this letter would have understood its language of the freed person and of being bought theologically and materially. Terms of slavery and freedom in 1 Corinthians were not merely metaphorical. They did not function only to provoke theological or philosophical speculation about the self. I do not assume, as many have, that Paul, his co-workers, and the ecclesiae to which he wrote were ignorant or unconcerned about the reality of slavery due to eschatological thought, that their emphasis on awaiting Christ and an imminent end of time made them accepting of or unconcerned about social inequalities. My talk turns away from Paul to the recipients of this letter. As Jennifer Glancy asks, how might slaves within the Corinthian uh, community have received the news that porneia, fornication, must be excised from the community when many slaves had no control over their own bodies and might be forced into prostitution or sexually used by their masters? How could those people be part of the community in Christ? If we shift from a search from Paul's intentions in using language of slavery and freedom to the reception of the letter by varied participants in the Corinthian community, we cannot avoid examining the ancient social and material context of the institutions and ideologies that undergird slavery and manumission in the ancient world. Indeed, I argue that this language of being bought and of being a freed person would have been particularly significant at Corinth, a colony largely settled by freed persons. So section one, freed persons as ambiguous things. Feminist and post-colonial critics, concerned as we claim to be about the marginal, the subaltern, and about retrieving evidence of these in the historical record, should be particularly interested in the definitions of slave and free and the potentially strange ontological status of the freed person in the Roman world. In the pre-Pauline baptismal formula of Galatians 3, for example, we find a clear contrast, neither slave nor free. 
But despite this frequently asserted binary, real life in antiquity was much more ambiguous. The freed person in his or her person particularly confounded the category of person and thing. Aristotle had stated clearly that the slave is a thing, a tima, or a tool, an organon, even if this tool is a complicated thing. And I quote from the Nicomachean Ethics, there can be no friendship or justice in our dealings with inanimate things. We cannot even have it towards a horse or a cow, nor even towards a slave in his character as slave. For there is nothing in common. The slave is an animate tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. There can therefore be no friendship of a master for a slave as such, though there may be for him as human. You feel that ambiguity. Aristotle's struggling with the question of how in some lights the slave can be human, in most lights the slave is a thing. At a later date, in the first century BCE, Varro's Res Rustica, in discussing the tilling of land, sets slaves into two categories, among humans who work the land both slave and free, and among instruments or aids to humans, with slaves occupying the category of articulate instruments. Gaius's Institutiones in the mid-second century CE offers a tripartite division of the law. It pertains to persons, to things, or to actions. The category of persons involves human beings, and human beings can be, he says, either free men or slaves. Yet for Gaius, slaves can also fall into the category of things. He names them alongside other corporeal or incorporeal possessions, such as land, silver, gold, and other such objects. More to the time period of Paul, Augustine le legislation with its family values inclination <coughs> provides a different legal example of the challenge of categorizing slave and free. On the one hand, it prohibited a senator or his male descendants from marrying a freedwoman or an actor, and a senator's daughter or female descendants from his male line from marrying a freedman or an actor. On the other hand, those who had been manumitted unofficially could obtain Roman citizenship by entering into a marital relationship with a Roman or Latin woman and having a child who survived to the age of one year. Producing children for empire allowed for boundary crossings and some freedom. In contrast, the famous Senatus Consultum Claudianum in 52, much revised in later centuries, stated that a free woman who chose to cohabitate with a slave man could herself be enslaved or could be reduced to the status of a freedwoman, a liberta of the slave man's master. Such legislation implies two things. First, that slavery is a kind of contagion, and the free woman who crosses a line in associating with the slave herself becomes a tertium quid, neither quite free nor slave. The Claudian regulation in indicates governmental attempts to regulate and to punish those women who were border crossers of the lines of social status in the Roman Empire. The freed person was generally still, even in his or her freedoms, tied legally to his or her master or patron, visiting frequently and serving that person. The freed person is in the vexed state in antiquity of being a person who had been in the definition of some a thing. Roman law sometimes tried to work itself out of this strange ontological position by creating a kind of fictive drama at manumission. The manumissio vindicta took the form of a mock trial, which implied that the person had been wrongly enslaved and was restored to his or her rightful status through the trial. The manumissio sensu involved the slave entering the census record and the sliding quietly into the status of the free. 
These legal fictions worked to deny the reality of an intermediate zone between slave and free. At the same time as such legal fiction strove to create clear categories of slave and free, other literary and legal sources acknowledged the ambiguous identity of freed persons by characterizing them as suspect, stained by their former slavery. The phrase in Latin, the maculis servitutis, irrevocably flawed by the tendency to flatter and incapable of bravery. They were degraded and degrading. What remains to us in the archaeological and literary record is usually evidence from the elite and the wealthy. Therefore, we know most about freed persons in antiquity who became fabulously rich or who diligently climbed their way into social acceptability. Indeed, we have evidence that great wealth did accrue to some freedmen. To give only one example, we have the gate in Ephesus of Mazaeus and Mithridates, freedmen of Augustus. They constructed a monumental gate at the Triodos or Embolos there, the very significant central part of town for those of you who've been there, next to the library of Celsus. So let's see if I can do this. Worked at home. Well, the gate, um, the gate itself is here next to the library of Celsus. And these freedmen, fabulously wealthy, were probably buried within the pomerium of the city, an extremely unusual honor. But we usually know about such wealthy freed persons through jealous, long-standing elites. Juvenal, to give only one example, satirizes current conditions in Rome with an example of the freedmen from the, a freedman from the Euphrates with, and I quote, womanly windows in his ears, that is, his earrings, who has made fantastic amounts of money in business and maintains his place in line before the praetor and the tribune. Juvenal wants us to see and to lament how money trumps sacred office and ancient family status. We might see instead Juvenal's elite anxiety, his sexism and his racism in this depiction of a particular freedman. Even the uh, wealthy freedman or freedwoman is open to mockery precisely because she occupies a gray space between slave and free. This is even more true in antiquity of poor freed persons who were only conditionally manumitted. That is, they remained in servitude through what's called a paramoni clause. Westerman and Finley have used evidence from these paramoni inscriptions to argue that there was a range of statuses between slave and free in the ancient world. So too, in discussing the manumission inscriptions at Delphi, which we'll talk about a bit later, Keith Hopkins points to a blurring of the slave-free dichotomy, and I quote, some manumission contracts, in some manumission contracts, ex-slaves were explicitly required to go on working after manumission like slaves. The Greek term is dulevonda. Such requirements make nonsense of the conventional dichotomy, he writes, dominant in the sociological literature between slaves and free. The lives of ancient peoples lay on a more complex spectrum than the binary slave-free implies. We may wonder whether in antiquity humans thought of themselves and each other first as things which then had to gain the status of humanity through being recognized at birth, held up by the pater familias rather than exposed, which is to be left to thinghood as a corpse or as a foundling, or through being born into freedom. Legal personhood may have been something tenuous, always potentially lost through piracy, debt, war, humanness may have been an accident of birth. How do we theorize things in a time and a place where there was not necessarily a rupture between people and things, but rather literal kinship 
as in the instance we have from a funerary inscription from northern Greece where a master father memorializes his slave son. How do we make things intelligible? If we can and should theorize the thing, because we have inchoately begun to theorize it already, as Bill Brown has argued, and if things can have social lives, and if things can be people and people can be things, a focus on things may deepen our understanding of the Corinthian correspondence and the setting of those who first received it. New Testament scholars have expanded our knowledge by focusing on some things in 1 Corinthians, on the veil, on food for idols, on pnevma, spirit as material bits. But despite many debates in New Testament studies over freedom and slavery, what has not yet been adequately discussed is this, a human's thingness and how this might shed, how this might be shed through the act of manumission. And this ontological conf uh, change then confirmed by more things, by money, by a will on papyrus, by a manumission inscription recorded on stones. Section two, freed persons and human price in Corinth. Twice in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the phrase, you were bought with a price, evoking for some the reality of the slave market in the Mediterranean antiquity. In chapter six, you were bought with a price is an emphatic conclusion to his injunctions against the Corinthians slogan, all things are permitted to me. It's likely that the Corinthians understood their new status in Christ and their baptism to lead to social and spiritual liberation, a wisdom or gnosis that led to spiritual gifts such as prophecy and speaking in tongues. In Paul's thought experiment, such liberation and the idea that all things are, uh, are permitted could in extremis lead to male use of prostitutes. In such an act, he argues, the members of the individual body tied into the one body in Christ commingle with the members of another's body and thus produce sin against one's own body verse 18. Using language of purity, Paul insists that such actions bring porneia, polluting the body, which he argues is a naos, or a temple, housing uh, a holy spirit from God. Shun porneia, he concludes in verse 18. This question of becoming one body with someone else or with the Lord leads to the climax in verses 19 to 20. Do you not know that you are not your own? You were bought for a price. It is likely that for hearers of early hearers of 1 Corinthians, two slaves are evoked in this saying. The first is the slave who might be a prostitute forced into porneia because she or he is a thing, an instrument to be rented out, and then excluded potentially by Paul's injunction from the possibility of participating in a community in Christ because she or he is the agent of porneia. The second slave evoked by this passage is the Corinthian who reads or hears this read in assembly, and whether slave or free, is confronted with the idea that she or he is bought for a price and is thus rendered a slave, glorifying God in his or her body. The passage raises questions for its earliest recipients. Who has the power to control the purity of his or her body? Whose body is it anyway? And body in Greek soma is of course also a Greek word for slave. A little later in the letter, Paul brings the Corinthians into the statarion or slave market again in a section on manumission and freedom. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of humans. 
From papyrological evidence, we know that this use of timis with a verb, price with a verb, highlighted the issue of cost, whether of grain or in this situation of people. Such terminology likely would have aggressively confronted the Corinthians with the language of trade and per uh, familiar with the language of trade and purchase with the question of human pricing. First Corinthians seven, in First Corinthians seven, this pricing is linked to manumission. The pre preceding verse contains the only use, as I've said in the New Testament canon, of the technical terminology for the freed person. Real material price and manumission would have been on the minds of the Corinthians. It's not coincidental that the only reference to the status of freed person occurs in 1 Corinthians, I think. Unlike many Roman colonies, Corinth was largely dis uh, destroyed by the forces of the Roman general Mummius in 146 BCE, and in 44 CE, it was reestablished as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar. It again emerged as a leader on the Peloponnesus, but it was repopulated not by military veterans as many colonies such as Philippi were, but by ex-slaves. The city lay on a convenient trade route in antiquity, on the isthmus connecting ancient Attica to the Peloponnesus. It nestled inland between its ports of Lycaon to the north and Cancrea to the south and near Isthmia. And since various ancient attempts to cut through the isthmus failed, merchants and military had to negotiate with Corinth to transfer cargo from the Saronic Gulf to the southeast to the Gulf of Corinth to the northwest unless they wanted to circumnavigate the Peloponnesus. The city controlled a seven-meter paved roadway called the Diokos that allowed oxen to drag ships or cargo across the narrow spit of land. And with that control came an ability to exercise duties and to become a prosperous city. And they've tried experiments of rebuilding ships and dragging them across this little paved pathway. You can imagine the science of archaeology today. Corinth filled a commercial vacuum in the region of the Roman period, in this region in the Roman period, and a population migration of freedmen away from Rome into a major business center served Roman elites well. If Corinth held out the hope for upward mobility, especially to freedmen who could act as businessmen for their former masters, their patrons, who were legally barred from the business of filthy lucre, right? If it held out the hope of upward mobility, it also was populated by those who were considered good-for-nothing slaves, to quote a first-century source, who were still poor. In Anthony Spofforth's words, the men without means, the apori, with whose demands for land Appian linked Caesar's, found, Caesar's foundation of Corinth. Yet for some of these ex-slaves still tied by the patronage system to their masters, uh, they, they could conduct business on their master's behalf at an important point, uh, point between West and East. Numismatic coin evidence from the first century indicates that a mix of freedmen and traders became leaders in Corinth. Although freed persons were not usually eligible for magistracies for these civic roles, Caesar made exceptions for colonies that he had founded. Many freedmen became wealthy and prominent in Corinth. We find this in um, Babius Philinus, who held a uh, important civic roles of Pontifex, Edile, and Duovir. There you see, if I jumped up, his monument, Babius's monument, right? Um, and he left a significant monument in the forum. We also find freedom when we look closely at the Tiberian period monument of the Augustales. Participation in the Augustales is known generally to have been a means for freed persons and their children to advance socially as well as to exhibit their wealth. The organization formed a kind of second ordo under the equestrian rank, a, mean, a, a way for men of lower status 
who themselves could not pass into the class of uh, decoriones to display their status and wealth and to make a way for their children to climb socially. The Augustales base at Corinth was located in a prominent place within the forum. It stands in a kind of unofficial forecourt. It's a small letter A on this uh, plan. In a kind of unofficial forecourt to the Julian Basilica, a governmental center on the east end of the forum, and it's hemmed in by one side of the Pyrene Fountain, which itself evoked Corinth's ancient Greek identity and Roman reappropriations of that. Freedmen are thus located at a key center of politics and religion, near the Julian Basilica and the Rostrum on the one hand, and facing Temple E and the small temples and dedications lining the east side of the forum on the other. The inscription rises 2.2 meters over the current paving level and perhaps as high as 2.7 meters at the time of its erection. Here you see the reconstruction from Margaret Laird. Cuttings in the top indicate that it was likely crowned by a bronze statue of the deified Augustus, thus associating its donors with the head of the empire. The inscription on the Augustales base indicates that at least two freedmen at Corinth participated in the group. They're clearly so marked because of their inscription L for Libertus, freed person, and onomastic evidence indicates that there were more freedmen. If you want to trip me up in the question and answer period, you can ask me about onomastics. Section 3, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7. Freed person identity is a defining factor at the origins of Roman Corinth, roughly a century before Paul's visits to the city, and prominent freed persons continued to be visible in the public square through their benefactions and through monuments that honored them. The lives of poorer freed persons, and indeed of slaves at Corinth, are harder to reconstruct. Although we have evidence from Paul's first, uh, first letter to the Corinthians, it's clear from 1 Corinthians 7, and implicit elsewhere in the letter, that slaves were participants in the assembly in Christ. Short but difficult, difficult to understand passages like 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, not only allow the cottage industry of New Testament studies to continue, but they also challenge us to think about the impact of the words of this letter on those slaves and freed persons at Corinth who first received it. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24 forms a digressio, or digression, to the chapter's discussion of marriage and not marriage, and the advice, in essence, neither to divorce nor to marry, unless the latter is perceived to be absolutely necessary. I have a colleague who went to the wedding of one of her students, and the student asked her brother, could you please read for me at my wedding the passage in 1 Corinthians about marriage? <laughs> he was a better biblical scholar than she, so he did read the passage about it being better to marry than to burn instead of 1 Corinthians 13 on love. Be careful what you know about the Bible. The dig this digression breaks the flow in order to, pro to provide two case studies. The binaries of circumcised, uncircumcised, and slave-free become thought experiments in the question of changing and choosing social status, as with the issue of whether it is good to marry or not. Paul begins discussion of the exempla in this way. Nevertheless, as God has called each, as the Lord has allocated to each, let each walk in this manner. Keep walking or keep living, peripatine, the letter insists, in a certain way. In, first, uh, in verse 17, we find the language of call also, a concept that echoes throughout the epistle and often marks the privileged identity of the Corinthians in Paul's eyes. At the beginning of the letter, terminology of calling indicates their chosenness and their transformation, as we see in the address in 1-2, 
to the assembly of God which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called Cletus to be holy, together with all those who have called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, their Lord and ours. In the case of 1 Corinthians 7, call has a different inflection. It refers to one's status, how one's marked ethnically, circumcised or not, where one stands in the categories of marriage, virginity, widowhood, whether one is slave or free. With his comment that he orders all the ecclesiae in this manner, Paul conjures a larger set of assemblies, enjoining the Corinthians to act as others do, as he does in 1 Corinthians 11, about the veil as well. Given the preponderance of freed persons in Corinth and given the way in which manumission might already be on their minds, the Corinthians might have understood their situation to be exceptional. Paul insists that they temper their exceptionality. Verse 20, sorry about the small font, is a midpoint summary to Paul's larger argument in chapter 7. Let each remain meneto in the calling in which he or she was called. The verb remain is an injunction and refrain in the chapter. The digression has a clear structure. The point remain is stated in verse 17 and echoed again at verse 24 with this clear midpoint statement at verse 20. After treating the case study of circumcision, Paul offers a second case study, that of slave and free, which you see behind you. Were you a slave when called? Don't let it concern you. But even if you can gain your freedom, and again, this is why people like me have jobs. All the more use it. Talk about that in a second. For she or he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person of the Lord. Likewise, she or he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of humans. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever state each was called, remain with God. Paul again frames his discussion of slave-free status in light of calling, but by the time the community itself hears or reads 1 Corinthians 7, calling has become a kind of paralysis, a status in status, stasis in status, stay as you were called, remain that way. Whether Paul insists upon remaining in the situation of slavery has and continues to be debated. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, in the midst of a passage on slave, free, and freedom, we stub our interpretive toes on an unfinished ellipsis, as other scholars and interpreters have for centuries. Were you a slave when called? Don't let it concern you. But even if you can gain your freedom, all the more use it. Scholars debate which noun belongs after the infinitive. Does one, as some argue, go back to the closest noun, elefteros, and supply freedom? Does one instead go to the larger theme of the passage with its banging repetition of remain as you are and supply dulia, slavery? The grammatical uncertainty is not a matter of us later interpreters having a weak grasp of first century koine. The Corinthians who received this letter in the absence of further or prior discussions and teachings in their own ecclesia were as likely, likely as baffled as we are about the meaning of the words. And as Carl Holliday has pointed out in his commentary, many contemporary interpreters are embarrassed by the idea that we should uh, supply the word slavery, even though it is the more likely translation, remain as you are, remain a slave. This affects how we interpret. Many interpreters, in the face of such translational and interpretive unclarity, escape to an interpretation that neutralizes the passage's revolutionary idea of seeking freedom on the one hand, or its horrifying quietism of staying a slave on the other. They do so by reading the passage as merely eschatological, theological, or metaphorical, 
Hans Konzelmann, for example, argues that the passage should be read as an injunction to stay within slavery and use it, titling the section on 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24 as eschatological freedom, right? Freedom deferred in a way. This gives us a clue as to how he and many other commentators read such passages on freedom and slavery in Paul. They impute to Paul and thus to his communities a disinterest in real material conditions on account of an expectation of an imminent parousia or on account of popular stoic injunctions that you, even if you're a slave, can be free philosophically, can create freedom within yourself. Konzelman's um, conclusion is that, and I quote, no change of status brought about by myself can further my salvation. It's interesting how he moves to the first person there. In the church, worldly differences are already abrogated. Konzelman's not the only one who misses the opportunity to think about material and social realities of slavery within the community in Christ at Corinth. We might be more surprised to find a prominent liberation and Marxist reader of the New Testament doing the same, and I say this with deep affection for Dick Horsley, who has nonetheless argued this, that Paul's words about slave and free provide an exception to the general rule to stay as you are. Treating the idea of being bought with a price, Horsley states, and I quote, we know the illusions of bought with a price not only because of Paul's statements elsewhere that through Christ's crucifixion God has redeemed us with an emphasis on liberation from bondage. Paul's point is to check what he sees as a self-centered empowerment of certain Corinthians, not to present the new life as slavery to God. Horsley reads Paul's bought with a Christ not in economic terms or in light of commodifications of humans as somata, as bodies to be bought and sold, but as a cosmological concept having to do with God's redemption, a metaphorical purchase of the person into an apparently immaterial liberation. Let me emphasize here that I have no beef with metaphorical or theological readings, but they, those that still do not take into account the material realities, those I have a beef with. In his 1908 Light from the East, Adolf Deismann argued that manumission inscriptions in the precinct of the god Apollo at Delphi were relevant for a reading of 1 Corinthians 6 to 7. Scholars, uh, these manumissions were formulated as a sale of the slave to the god, sort of fictional uh, re-enslavement to a god. Scholars have long dismissed Deismann's use of these inscriptions to understand 1 Corinthians, and I can tell I'm getting old when I'm going back to someone who was writing in 1908 and saying, we really need to take him seriously. I want to revive his argument. The inscriptions at Delphi and elsewhere that fall under the scholarly category, sacral manumissions, can help us to understand the pricing of humans, the value of their labor and of themselves as things. This glance at the bare transaction of humans a bare transaction that occurs under the eyes of and even with the help of the God is indeed a relevant context for understanding the range of knowledge and experience that those at Corinth may have brought to their hearing and reception of Paul's letter. Section four, a market for people and things. Although we have a good amount of evidence of freed persons at Corinth in the first century CE, we have scant local evidence about slaves. Yet, as I have been arguing, Paul's twice repeated phrase, you have been bought with a price, in his correspondence with the Corinthians, calls attention to the material reality that humans can be things purchased and sold. It leads us to search more broadly through evidence for slave prices and slave markets in antiquity in Delphi and elsewhere. How were people bought and sold? What might a person be worth? What's your price or timi? Some cities were famed for slave markets, such as Ephesus, Rome, Delos. Others seem to have had occasional markets, or in the case of evidence from Syria, bi-weekly markets. 
We can focus on Athesis through Monica Trimper's collection of inscriptions about Stataria, slave markets, and other possible locations for slave markets there. In that city, we find evidence of a slave market in the Tetragonos Agora, just behind that gate that I showed you earlier, actually, even if it's unclear whether there was a building that was dedicated for the purpose of selling slaves or whether it just happened uh, generally in the open space. Fragments of a statue base found in the vicinity of the Agora honor the proconsul of Asia for his role, quote, as a patron of qui instatario negotiantur, those who do business in the slave market. This same group, that is, those who do business in the slave market, dedicated a statue to the freedman, Tiberius Claudius Secundus, in the Tetragonus Agora in 100, BC, uh, 100 CE. Paul, of course, was familiar with Ephesus at a slightly earlier period. He likely wrote 1 Corinthians there. My essay began by citing, citing Scheidel's comment about the shocking amount of humans bought and sold in the Roman Empire. What these bodies were worth varies, and it's difficult to trace that variation diachronically or even in terms of the worth of the individual human. Moreover, from the manumissions at Delphi, we know that the cost of freedom was rising in the Roman period. And one's price value, the timi or price for which one could be bought, varied standardly according to four attributes, your sex, your age, your ethnic or origin, and your skills. What we know about slave prices is largely based upon manumission inscriptions and some Egyptian census data. But the largest single cache of information regarding slave prices and manumissions comes from Delphi. There, from the second century BCE to the first century CE, slave prices were recorded in roughly 1,000 manumission inscriptions, mentioning more than 12,000 slaves. These note the sale of the slave, a sort of fictitious sale of the slave to the god Apollo, naming, among others, the priests, the owner, and other parties consenting to the sale, the slave's name, and the conditions of release. These inscriptions are neatly written, as you can see, and tightly packed along the polygonal masonry that forms the platform to the temple of the god himself. So that last slide was sort of along the wall supporting this temple. And indeed, the inscriptions creep past the temple and up into the theater above it lining the seats and the steps of the cavea and other places within the theater. Dysman's intellectual instinct to bring the manumission inscriptions of Delphi together with Paul's injunctions in 1 Corinthians 7 was right, insofar as slave prices and the challenge of paying for manumissions would have been relevant to the Corinthian community. Data patched together from the Delphi manumission inscriptions indicate that from the 1st to the 3rd century CE, uh, those inscriptions as well as other papyri, young adult, a young adult slave with moderate skills would be worth approximately four tons of wheat equivalent, which is slightly more than three years' survival for a peasant family at subsistence levels. As those who study the economy of slavery in the Roman world would admit, this attempt to translate the cost recording in, recorded in inscriptions to real dollar value, so to speak, may be inaccurate, but one point is clear. Slaves were more expensive in the Roman Empire than they were in classical Athens. They may have been a luxury item in the Roman world. The inscriptions from Delphi proper indicate that the price of freedom increased from the second century BCE to the first century CE. In the case of male slaves, the full cost for full freedom doubled, and the cost of conditional release, that is with this paramony agreement, rose 10%. For female slaves, the cost of full freedom rose 28%, conditional release 14%. In addition, these inscriptions teach us that intimacy brought few rewards. There's no clear a reduction in the price of your freedom if you were a home-born slave versus one bought from the outside. 
nor in one case is one's freedom less expensive if one who is a slave who is also the master's son. In addition to the increasing expense of manumission, other ancillary costs were high. At Delphi in the first century CE and in Kalimna in the first century CE, it seems to have been increasingly common for masters to make explicit provisions in manumission contracts about the status of children born in service, in the words of Keith Hopkins. Sometimes one was required to leave a child, sometimes two, to the master and the master's offspring. These children would have to be one or two years old and thus past the significant mortality rate age in antiquity. Sometimes you could pay a fee if you were not going to provide a child. Let me make these complexities of manumission a little bit more specific, especially as regards paramony in uh, agreements and children, by looking at two examples. The inscription at Delphi, the first I'll discuss, dates to the first half of the first century CE, and it's carved into a block on the podium of the theater. I translate part of it for you. Sophrona, with the consent of her son Sosandros, gives over to the Pythian Apollo for freedom a home-born female slave, Soma, body, by the name of Onasiphoron, for the price of Thrimnai, and she has received the entire price. So also Onasiphoron entrusted the contract to the god by whom she is free, and no one can claim her as slave, nor does she belong at all in, in any way to anyone. Euclidias is the guarantor according to the laws. But let Onasiphoron remain paramineto with Sophrona all the years of her life, doing what she is commanded uncomplainingly. But if she does not do it, let Sophrona have the authority to lay a penalty upon her in whatever way she wishes. Let Onasiphoron give a child to Sosandros, that is, the son of the former owner. It is executed according to the law, which is engraved in the sanctuary of Apollo. Another example, also from the first half of the first century CE, comes from the island of Kalimna. It reads, in the reign of Claudianos, in the 20th month of Dalios, Epicharis, daughter of Zelos, freed her own slave, Isodotos, on the condition that he remains with her and her husband for the rest of their lives. After their death, he shall rear for her children, Doras and Onesimis, each a male nursling, or give as payment 50 denarii for use. But if he does not stay, let him give every day, and the manumission inscription falls off there. We don't know the daily payment required if he were to leave. She is free, says the inscription at Delphi. She has freed her own slave, says the inscription from Kalimna. In both cases, we may feel a rise of promise at reading about freedom, a promise soon deeply compromised, we may feel, by both the paromoni clauses and by the demand that the slaves Onesiphoron and Isodotos leave behind their children in slavery. A slave's price was also affected in antiquity by disease and defect. With the sale of slaves as of livestock, an essential question emerged. How could one guarantee the quality of the things sold? In a business transaction, what, was inf what information was available about the things that were being sold? Roman law treats this topic of worth and information. We have in Justinian's Digest legal rulings and debates from the first century BCE through the second and later, which secure, seek to secure the buyer against what we would call a lemon, right? Against the thing that looks useful but turns out to be broken or injured once you get it home. The, of the, curial, uh, the edict of the curial ediles, according to Opian, concerns, quote, the sale of things immovable as much as movable or animate. And it was particularly concerned with protecting the buyer against bad goods. Debates of subsequent legal experts on what constitutes defect and disease help one to imagine the slave as an item with a sub-inventory. 
Defects and diseases which Roman legal experts debated include what we would call mental illness, learning disorders, speech defects, loss of fingers and toes, women who tended to have stillborn infants, those who had suicidal tendencies, slaves who had previously attempted to run away, those with missing teeth, those who had a tongue cut out, those tending to criminality, and even those tending towards religious fanaticism, an accusation that could have been directed towards those first hearing 1 Corinthians. If a slave has, and I quote, a bad habit cavorting around the shrines and uttering virtually demented ravings, it is a mental defect, says the law, and quote, so constitutes no ground for rescission, according to Vivianus. A conclusion further confirmed by Pomponius, who explains, and I quote, I just want you to get a flavor for what these laws look like. A vendor is not required to produce a slave of full intellect. Still, if he sell one so silly or moronic that he's useless, there is a defect under the edict. Generally, the rule which we appear to observe is the expression defect and disease applies only in respect of physical defects. A vendor is liable in respect of, um, of a defect of mind only if he undertakes the liability for it. Hence, the expression reservation, the express reservation for the wandering or the runaway slave, for their defects are of the mind, not physical. It is for this reason that the, there are those who say that animals prone to shy or to kick are not to be accounted as diseased, for such defects are of the mind, not the body. One's value could increase or decrease not only because of age or injury, but also for moral and ethical causes. Aulus Gellius cites the first century jurist who states that some slave traders put felt caps on those slaves whom they would not guarantee. And even as we might curse a car warranty that expires just before the transmission gives out, so too in antiquity there were guarantees against slaves' defects, but they only lasted so long. Buyers were protected against additional defects for six months or for two months if the slave was sold without warranty, and for a year or six months if they were bought um, with some sort of warranty. The framework of the usefulness of slaves on the one hand and the comparison to skittish animals on the other helps us to understand what was at stake for some Roman lawyers. That is the slave's use value and what some Roman lawyers considered to be good comparanda for slaves, that is, animals. While it's impossible to determine with certainty the price of a given slave at Corinth in the first century CE, you are bought with a price might evoke common knowledge regarding the markability and price value of slaves. We have learned that slave value varied not only according to race or ethnicity, gender, age, and skills, but also in light of multiple factors of disease and defect. We learned that freedom was increasingly expensive. And even if the manumission price proper was reduced by ancillary clauses, such as a paramony clause, or the requirement to leave behind or produce a thriving child for the master or those in his family, we can wonder whether such discounted manumission was, in emotional terms, incalculably dear. Conclusions. You were bought with a price. Do not be slaves. Be a slave to humans. The language of slavery abounds in the New Testament and in the Pauline letters. Paul refers to himself often as doulos Christu, the slave of Christ, right? Not to the Galatians, of course, but to others whom he's trying to get along with better. Despite references in Paul's letters to freedom and even to the act of freeing, in a sense that seems to be explicitly about the freeing of slaves, Paul's ambiguous statements about slavery allowed the writers of 1 Timothy, Colossians, and Ephesians to take on Paul's voice and his name and to write in his voice with the assumption that members of communities in Christ may own slaves or that Christian slaves must be subject to their masters. 
False use of the slave-free metaphor is theologically productive. Slavery, as Bert Harrell has argued, is so endemic to the Roman world that Paul, like other writers, uses this base condition as a way of thinking through philosophical and theological problems. But what of the reception of such slave-free language? How might the earliest ecclesia at Corinth have heard such language of buying, pricing, selling, of being a freedman? Whether or not Paul so intended, the potential of you are bought with a price repeated twice in the letter is radical, especially when juxtaposed with his mention of the freed person. His comment asks the hearer or reader to think of themselves as things on the market. It directs the free to consider what price they are worth, what it means to be bought, and perhaps how they might slip so easily from the status of person back to the status of thing. It reminds the slave or the freed person of his or her place in the market. Indeed, it briefly renders the church into a kind of statarion, a location where God or Christ moves into the marketplace to purchase humans. Even if one is trading up masters, it's interesting to see that the structure is still the same. A community of freed persons would have had to consider deeply the issue of human price. Such freed persons might engage in the mental calculus of how much their still enslaved children or spouses would cost, of how much it had cost them to jump from the status of nearly free with a paramuni clause to truly free, remembering the daily tax upon freedom that we learned about from the Kalimna inscription. They might barter over the price of their own slaves, wondering if the vendor's claims about the slave's health and usefulness would hold true. One effect of hearing 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24 is to, might be to relativize the free slave status in this community by rendering God as the master or Christ as Kyrios, master or lord, with all the potentially disturbing undertones or liberative undertones of a master God. Another effect might be to evoke in the freed person or the person working towards manumission, the memory or concrete consideration of his or her valuation. I was bought with a price. I bought myself with my wages. And finally, and most radically, some Corinthians may have heard the text as demanding that free and slave and freed person alike think about the master too as a thing. What is she worth? These questions may resonate for recipients of 1 Corinthians today in our world of sex trafficking of unequal health care in our world of debates over reparations and the legacy of slavery in America. You too, the letter insists, are bought with a price. What is the value of the thing that you are? Thank you very much. And I welcome your questions. Thank you, Laura. There's time for questions. Um, if you have a question, please raise your hand and use the microphone. And please identify yourself. Luke, you want to get us started? You can stay seated, that's fine. Thank you for a rich uh, presentation. I was really struck by your point early on, and then you came back to it at the very end, about sex trafficking and the vulnerability of slaves to being used instrumentally in sexual ways. And I was struck by your point that Paul's language about flea pornea may, in, in such instances, not be morally available or put, put slaves in a very difficult position. I know the Trimalchio passage of, of, that, of, of such usage. 
is the argument about the pervasiveness of that kind of sexual vulnerability of male and female slaves. Is there a great deal of positive evidence for that, um, either inscriptionally or literarily, or, or is the main part of that argument from analogy to universal slave practices? There is a good deal of evidence of the sexual use of slaves by masters in the Roman period. Um, it's not only in, uh, you refer to the wonderful fictional narrative of, of Petronius, a depiction of a freed person, um, but it's also in what we might call more documentary sources. One interesting thing that I was reading about in Roman law the other day sort of debates how severe the how severe the offense of a master upon a slave has to be before it becomes illegal. Um, and in other sources, and I don't have them off the top of my head, um, Jennifer Zorosi's book is pretty rich with them, we do have plenty of evidence of the sexual use of masters by their slaves with no, no clear moral concern about that. And it does raise a really hard question about Christian communities going forward, not only the Corinthians who would have received this letter. And of course, in First and Second Corinthians, we have this great gift. We know that there was an ongoing correspondence which we're missing for other letters. Um, and we know that the, that the Corinthians kind of looked around at other, other missionaries, right? They were testing out other, other people, kicking the tires of others who brought messages um, about Judaism and about being in Christ. And in fact, in Second Corinthians 10.10, as you know, we know that these other competitive, these other missionaries competing with Paul said of Paul that he was just really not much to look at. His letters are weighty and mighty, right? But he himself in person is, is pretty much nothing. So we can imagine that the Corinthians did debate what Paul had to say to them in, in the letter that we have as the Corinthians. Um, but yes, there is, there is other, other evidence. Other questions? Hi, I'm Liz Bounds, and I teach uh, Christian ethics here. And I, I found myself sort of thinking about the, since my area is contemporary, uh, or modern contemporary, um, the sort of post-Civil War, uh, post-slavery, what did and didn't happen here in the South, and thinking of that in relationship to the sorts of things you were talking about. So I have two, two my, both of my questions are about, a little bit more about the social and material context of the time. Because if you think about um, post-Civil War here, you have, an ex you have a strong external disruption since a great deal of the South is, is destroyed economically, uh, which you wouldn't have had in this context. But nevertheless, you have the situation that even though folks have been, African-Americans have been freed, in fact, very little else or a great deal else does not change in the social order, which is comparable to what we're looking at here. Uh, I would think. So I want to know a little bit more about what were the, it seems to me that part of those inscriptions you were saying, you were talking about would be written with the realities of what did a freed, what could a freed person actually do, particularly female I would assume, but, um, but male or female. So I wanted to ask a little bit if you, if there's a little bit more you knew about that. And then I wanted to ask also then about what we know or what you know of the of that social mix of the congregation at Corinth or elsewhere. Because one of the things, again, contrasting to the post-Civil War South here is that you would not, on the whole, ever have had whites and blacks mix, mixing in a, in, a, in, a, in a congregation, in a community of faith. That wasn't going to happen. 
<laughs> yeah. So, and, and it would seem that there might have been forms of those mixings, perhaps, in these Christian communities that is partly in the mind in, in these conversations and in the way these texts would have been heard and would have been interpreted. And without getting all kind of, you know, idealistic and romantic about these matters, I mean, can, would, would, would these communities have had these circumstances? I mean, the reality, again, thinking of what I know better, the sort of slavery, you have the complexities under slavery of personal relations between, and I don't mean just sexual relationships, I mean personal relations between um, masters and slaves. There, on one level, those are obviously complete oppression and domination, but human beings do, other things can happen in the human beings. And so I, that's really was where my question was coming. Is it, can you imagine situations where both the slave and the master, if the master is in the, in the community, are beginning to be compelled to see each other differently in the master-slave relationship? Is that imaginable? Thank you so much. I'm going to give a longer answer. The short answer that is so sad about the study of antiquity is we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> I think it look And I think you know, the expansion actually has some significant points. The first point is that there's a large debate in the study of Roman slavery on the extent to which we are and are not influenced by slavery. Should we be, how should we be? It's quite a different piece. Actually, slavery in the ancient world is not as racially inflected, although I tried to press on the fact that it is also racially inflected. If you are a slave from a particular region, you're going to be worth more than a slave from another region, right? And, and that has to do with maybe not skin color, but it has to do with issues of ethnicity. Slavery in antiquity is often more complex and variegated institution maybe than slavery in, um, in the Americas insofar as slaves could become quite wealthy, quite prominent. They could become, they were potentially imperial slaves with a lot of power in the household. So part of the challenge of talking about slavery, which is an institution that I think most of, most of us know is wrong, like we don't stand up for it, right? In antiquity, it's much more variegated. It's much more complicated. So when you ask about what would a freed person do after manumission, it's really complicated. Some freed persons, it seems to me, and scholars have debated, might be better off in slavery. And in fact, a source like, um, like Epictetus, you know, a philosopher who was a former slave, talks about slaves who longed and longed and longed for their manumission, and then upon becoming free, realized they had no means to sustain themselves, they were hungry, they were constantly with their master's house anyway, seeking the basics. Of course, we can also ask the extent to which that has become sort of elite topos in antiquity, like far better to be a slave than to be a free person. Um, but it's complicated. Um, Your second question has to do with the possible sort of mixing. Uh, is there a potential for transformative community, I would say, in the first century as a commoner? And I would say that yes, that's definitely the case. I wouldn't say, I'm not the kind of person who wants to argue that there was a pure origin and then a decline from those origins, but I would say, as many scholars have said before me, that the kinship language that earliest communities adopted, the language of brother and sister, is really significant and thought-provoking. On the other hand, we do have this inscription from about a slave named Vitalis from Brahma in northern Greece, where it's, it's pretty clear that the father is also the master who set up his son to work in a tavern and mourns the death of his slave who was working in the tavern who also happens to be his son, right? So that kind of complexity isn't always something that we would see as kind of ethically uh, inspiring. Um, we also find, I think, in the very term ecclesia, and you will notice that I tried 
very hard not to use the term Christian because I think it's too early to use that term Christian in the historical context, and I do use the term church very often because I think we need to keep alive the language that these people use for themselves. Ecclesia being a term for still active democratic assemblies that were in existence even in the first century under the Roman Empire in Greek cities. What does it mean to take for yourself the term of a democratic deliberative community? To talk about who you are as a religious community. And there are two, I think, that we can see sort of hope or indications of a social mixing and uh, maybe some sort of egalitarianism as well. Vernon Robbins, as I know you know. Um, thank you for the, the wonderful uh, range of data that you've presented to us. Um, I'd like to hear you uh, reflect on Paul's own willingness then to refer to himself as a slave of Christ. I heard the way in which it might be interpreted in relation to the Delphic um, inscriptions. But what about Paul's own relationship to the material realities of his life? And um, one of the things we know is this, uh, this willingness to identify himself as a tent maker and a person who supports himself in this way also appeals to others uh, through, as in 2 Corinthians, for uh, being willing to share with others. Um, do you see um, those ways of talking and those ways of relating to his own material, material realities? as related to his willingness to refer to himself as a slave of Christ? Yeah, thank you for the question. And it's a really, obviously, a really, really challenging one. Um, the first thing I want to mention is a kind of methodological move that I was trying to make in the talk and that I'm trying to make in my work more generally, which is not to deny the significance of this question. But in general, I'm really trying to think pretty deeply about what is the possible reception of the letter. We've spent so much time thinking about Paul, what he thought and how he argued. Um, so what would it like to have been someone in that community um, or in the communities that received these letters and, and heard them? Because we have to imagine them being read out loud. Mm -hmm. You don't go sit in your cubbyhole and read it privately. So how would those people have heard Paul's own adoption of language of slave, right? I was and, first going yeah. to ask it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted to draw it's so It's such an important question. And of course, as I sort of hinted in the talk, Paul strategically uses the language of slave. In Romans, where he's not sure of his status with the community, right? He's writing to people he doesn't know, and he's probably a letter of self-recommendation, basically. He needs a place to stay. He wants to impress them with, um, with his theological thinking about uh, uh, Jewish identity and being in Christ. He says, I'm slaves of Christ, right? In, uh, in Galatians, where he's really, really angry, he says, apostle, right? <laughs> right? That's where I'm going to start off my identity. So he strategically uses this terminology, and he strategically uses his own social and economic status. Um, I have not, and, and let me also say, you know, New Testament scholarship, as you know um, better than I, has long debated what is the language of slavery in Christ, and Dale Martin has argued that Paul is trying to signal the potential of the slave of God, the willikus, or the ikonomos, the person who kind of takes care of the household of God as a kind of important social status. That's what Paul's referring to. That's what Martin would argue. I'm more interested in, in your question, which I haven't really thought through, so I don't have a, a really good answer for it, but what would it mean for slaves within the community itself to hear someone who is evidently not a slave taking on that language of slave identity? Um, I'm not sure what the impact of that would be. Of course, we have traditions 
in Jewish scripture of uh, prophets and others being considered sons of God. Of course, we have traditions in Roman literature of the great general or the great leader saying, I am like a slave for you. So it may be that he's trading off those sort of conceptions. But we also know, those of us who teach the Paul, Pauline letters to our students know as we go through them over and over and over, that when you read Paul, you're very shocked to find out how much of it is about sex, eating, money, and how much money Paul is or isn't making, and who is or isn't donating, and why they aren't, and why the Macedonians are doing better than the Achaeans, and stuff like that. So I think your question's a really important one that I haven't fully thought out yet. Do you have a, an instinct for it? Or? Thank you. I, I just would fascinate first and foremost uh, with with the way in uh, which, for example, Ron Hawk has talked about um, uh, Paul over against other kind of philosophical people is willing to talk about working with his body rather than simply working with his mind as, as he could. And then that, that starts the whole sequence of his actually pointing out, look, I supported myself while I was there. So it looks like he may be actually embodying some of that middle status of you know slavery or freedom and as you say if you're if you're freed in a certain way but also enslaved in a certain way what you have to do is find a way to support yourself <laughs> and it may may lead you toward community or natural working with people or it may be a way of identifying with them yeah and i think that goes back to professor question to some extent you know we do not have good demographic evidence, nor can we get it, although we have tried for decades, on the social and economic makeup of Pauline communities, right? But we do know clearly that some people were slaves, that others were from their hands. And that Paul is this brilliant shapeshifter in his rhetoric, right? I'm a Jew due to those who are in the law, I'm like in, I'm in the law, I'm outside of the law, I'm like those outside of the law, he's mother, he's father coming at you with a rod, he's a slave, he's apostle, you know, so it's interesting to think about the ways in which he depicts his, uses his own body as a kind of teaching um. Hi, Laura. I'm Carol Newsom, And uh, I wanted to go back to the uh, manumission inscriptions. Um, did I understand correctly that the, uh, the way those were phrased, it was as though ownership was being transferred to the god? Yes. Okay, so is this, I guess, suppose two questions. One, is this typical of manumission inscriptions? And if so, does that mean that there was a kind of conceptual uncomfortableness about the notion, once one was a slave, of becoming one's own master again, if you will, and that they were much more comfortable in thinking about, no, in a sense, you're still a slave. It's just now we've put you as a slave to the god. And if so, would that be relevant to what Paul's talking about? Thank you so much for that question. Um, I have to say that um, there are many different kinds of manumission in antiquity, right? And there's a testamentary manumission in somebody's will. You free so many people, then there are legal regulations in the Roman period. Well, you can't free that many people. We don't want that many ex-slaves running around the countryside. Um, these are unusual. And part of the debate over Dyson's usefulness in the early 20th century, late 19th century, is that he really wanted to press on the idea that these slaves were sold to a god. And is it possible that First Corinthians is thinking through, the rhetoric of First Corinthians is thinking through that seal to the god, so that all people in Christ become slaves of the god as if they're sold under the god. So it's a fictitious sale. I have to say, I have not yet made deep sense of what was going on at, um, at Delphi. And I have a doctoral student who's working on this who has some very interesting hypotheses 
But this language of being sold to the God is, is unusual. It's not the normal way of doing many commission. On the other hand, here's a cache of a thousand inscriptions from the you know, second century BCE to the first century CE, so we have to use them. But the question of what kind of theological world would have allowed sale to a God and then the priests to guarantee it, um, that's a deep one. And I'm so glad you brought it up. I don't really Let's show our appreciation to the speaker. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.